Hey, if you're invested in the Las Vegas mayoral race, and really, we should all be, you're going to want to check out the Nevada Independent Mayoral Forum on Wednesday, May 15th at the Fountain Blue. The Indy CEO, John Ralston, will be moderating a live panel with the three frontrunners. You know, it could get spicy, so don't miss it. Tickets are available at thenevadaindependent.com slash events. And as a bonus for CityCast Las Vegas members, we've got two pairs of tickets we're giving away tonight. So make sure to join at membership.citycast.fm if you haven't already. It has been a busy week of news, but we're here to break it down for you. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, I'm joined by my co-host David Figler and producer Layla Muhammad. And we're talking about a Ponzi scheme targeting Mormons, bong water drenched petitions, allegedly, and a decade of Formula One racing on the strip. It's Friday, February 3rd, 2023. I'm Vogue Robinson, and here's what Vegas is talking about. Good morning, Layla. Good morning, David. How are y'all doing? Good morning. It's still chilly in Vegas, ready for this weather to be over. Right. I'll I'll ditto that. Also add on a, hey, 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 Layla, hey, Vogue. <laughs> 15 points for you. So I don't even know how to start this, y'all. And a pretty intense story that just dropped from the Washington Post, and it opens with a dramatic shootout at the Las Vegas mansion of Matthew Beasley. David, who the heck is Matthew Beasley and his business partner, Jeffrey Judd? Who are these people and why are they having shootouts at their mansion? Well, I remember when this all happened back last year and there was some reporting from Caitlin Newberg in the Review Journal talking about the shooting and the Ponzi scheme and $300 million. So what is this all about? Matthew Beasley is a lawyer and this guy, Jeffrey Judd, was a business person of sorts in the community he reached out to and... The allegation is that there was a scheme hatched, which Judd may or may not have known about, Beasley had to know about, where they were selling the idea to people that if you give us money to loan individuals who are going to receive proceeds from a lawsuit but just haven't gotten it yet, we will guarantee you a significant return on your investment once those uh, loans get paid back from the lawsuits. And people in droves bought into it for a number of different reasons. It has been alleged now that there were no lawsuits, there were no other lawyers, there were no monies coming, that this was just basically taking money from these people and then using it for their own personal gain on the commissions that they would be entitled to, and then using the rest of it to pay the next people in line instead of money from lawsuits. So that's a traditional Ponzi scheme. You're selling nothing and you're paying people to make it seem like there was a good deal from the new proceeds coming in. That's the core of this whole thing. What tentacles do you want to speak of, Layla and Vogue? Because there are so many interesting aspects of it, some which are covered in in the Washington Post story, some which aren't. One of the tentacles that I found interesting was that this covered 
over 900 people. Mm. And this operation went on for five years. So I'm wondering, how did this last so long and how is it so successful? Well, I think it was able to go on so long because this wasn't a traditional like they're putting out flyers in the world and trying to catch people. But this is like all word of mouth within what seems to be a very insular community. Right. It's that the specificity of targeting people who are Mormon. That's what's trash like about mm-hmm. it is that obviously so what it's called is an affinity fraud. So basically you just find people who are in a group. There's already in group trust. And so I think almost the same way for like if your friend tells you, OK, yeah, uh, I put my money into this. It's a great thing. It's wonderful. You guys go to church together. Right. You eat snacks together. And that's the thing about a lot of the families that I've been around that are Mormon. Like there's so many different family type events that happen like your whole community lives nearby you your church is in like within a particular radius so it's gaining that trust like it's happened with people have done like affinity frauds with jewish communities as well so it's interesting too because these kinds of fraudulent things are really the best examples of affinity fraud are in the united states so i i feel i guess we're just prone to take advantage of each other based on community trust Yeah, it's a tight-knit community. And while I don't think anyone suggests that any particular religion is homogenous in a certain way, certainly the LDS Church in in Las Vegas has at least a reputation for being a little insular, but very, very trusting within and a lot of interaction. And there's a lot of stories that are not relevant to this particular article in the Washington Post about LDS Church and how that all kind of works in the community they have and that it can be at times somewhat insular. But again, you know, case by case is different. But yeah, it seems like they were just tell a friend who told a friend who told a friend and a lot of their friends came out of their church groups. Yeah, I'm wondering, David, because Layla was asking like, oh, why was it successful for so long? Like, why didn't anybody ever call it out or go, we're not getting dividends? Like, how did it grow? I think the longevity of it has a lot to do with nobody doing sort of due diligence until somebody who's mentioned in the story was like, wait a second, that doesn't seem right to me. And then they did a little deeper dig with an entity that does this kind of for profit to like, I don't want to call it vigilantism, but they're kind of private citizens who try to figure out if there's Ponzi schemes going on and they do sting operations and then turn that information over to the authorities. Yeah. And to my understanding, that first person who saw that maybe this wasn't right was a Salt Lake City lawyer who was worried about a friend's investment. Mm. And so kind of dialing that back, if you know the Las Vegas community and you know the Las Vegas Mormon community, as I'm sure Jeff Gehrman, whose story this originally was, um, and the Washington Post took it over. It's a very close-knit community. They don't talk about their business dealings and their finances that much with outsiders. So I think that's one of the reasons why this probably went on so long is because everyone was turned in. And so there weren't a lot of outsiders peeking into this scheme and seeing like, oh, this doesn't look right. But people on the inside are like, oh, my bishop is a part of this. Oh, this businessman who's a part of the community is a part of this. So I think that's one of the reasons, too, why it lasted so long. Yeah. Vouching, internal vouching from people you trust. I mean, that's how you exploit it. But uh, a little digging apparently revealed that there was no there there. And that's how it began to rapidly unfold. I wonder what happens next with this. So this is kind of an interesting thread that's there, too, is that no one has been criminally charged, not even um, 
Matthew Beasley on, on this has been criminally charged with any fraud. He's in jail right now for the standoff. When they showed up at his house, he was either in such a depressed or suicidal fugue that he had a gun. Mm. And the allegation is he may have pointed it at a federal officer. And that's what he's in on is that assault on a federal officer, which to me is very trumped up. And, uh, you know, just from my perspective, that's probably really not what's going on here as far as the criminal side. But no one has been charged yet. This is all a SEC, Securities Exchange Commission, civil investigation, which is a whole different conversation about the kind of powers and penalties that they can levy on people. But no one has been charged in over the year criminally in this, including Beasley, who, by the way, is not a Mormon adherent. He's not part of the church. So I guess we're just going to kind of track to see uh, with all the publicity through the Washington Post story if the criminal side of things will kick in or maybe not. Hey, it's David Figler, and one of my favorite food festivals is coming back to town. It's Vegas Unstripped over at the Palms Hotel on Saturday, May 18th. Over two dozen chefs from some of Las Vegas' most talked-about restaurants creating original, unique menu items they've never made before. Chef creativity at its best. We're talking chefs from Partage, Esther's Kitchen, Milpa, EDO, and more, including this year's James Beard Award finalist Steve Kessler from Aroma. Tickets are $150 and are all-inclusive of food and drink, so you don't have to pay for anything once you're inside. No hidden-up charges. I went last year, and it was so crowded in the best possible way. We got one remarkable dish after another, and while it was a little indulgent, here's the best part. The net proceeds go to local charities. So head on over to VegasUnstripped.com to get your tickets now. We'll see you there. So Community Schools Initiative is suing the Vanguard Field Strategies, uh, which is a firm that ran their petition. And their petition was to break up Clark County School District. And the nuance of that, because I don't mind the idea of breaking up Clark County School District. Our school district is huge. But theirs would have allowed any incorporated city in Nevada to essentially secede from Clark County School District and create their own, like, mini school district as long as they had local voter approval. And if it would have been successful, then the state legislators would be considering it right now. But that's not what happened. (laughs) So what occurred was that the company gathered 233,000 signatures statewide for this initiative. And when I think about that, about 233,000 signatures, I know we've got a, a big state. But to think about that many signatures for something feels like a lot. For y'all, I'm sure this has happened to you, but you see somebody with a clipboard in front of like a grocery store. How likely are you to to take the time to sign? Depends on what mood they catch me. And I usually don't like (laughs) to be approached in a parking lot by a stranger. But if it's during the day and they use those buzzwords like education or housing, then I'll probably stop and hesitate, which is when they get you. (laughs) For sure. I don't. I'm not going to put my name on any petition unless. What? Yeah, I'll seek it out or I'll do my part because I like to think I'm politically in tune. A lot of these, I don't know who's behind it. I don't know if there's hidden agendas. I don't know what is going on with it. And so I, I feel like my advocacy for a particular hot issue 
can be achieved in a greater way than signing a rando petition that may or may not be what it purports to be, which might be pushed by people who I might have a completely opposing view to. I mean, the breakup of school districts is a very complicated issue. I'm I'm not on the, the bandwagon to break it up because I think that there could be a lot of negative impact. That said, I'm not just going to sign some petition, not me. But David, I feel like that's people actually taking their step forward to say, okay, we want to change the laws. So if if people don't gather together and, and create these petitions so that something can become a law, then aren't we kind of dampening people's desire to like participate in the political process? Well, you make a great point, Vogue, but I think the way that these petition drives works are so intentionally low information and sometimes mm. intentionally obscured information that it isn't worth the risk of signing off on something before I vetted and done research. And when you're coming out of, you know, Walgreens and you're accosted, you know, do you do you believe that animals should be slaughtered by the mass? You know, it's like, no, I don't. Then sign this. It's like, does that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what this is. So, you know, sometimes <laughs> I will ask if they have information, if they have a pamphlet, something I could do for the research so I could be a high information petition signer if I'm going to sign a petition, but rarely is that the case. They seem to really be burn and churn. Uh, They just Mm. want to get that name on there. And for obvious reasons, they got to build to a very high number to get something on the ballot. And if if it's not something I'm very, very intimately informed about or have had my time to do research, I'm not going to just throw my signature on a a piece of paper in in a parking lot. Well, there it is. I feel like I was more susceptible or not even susceptible, but I was more willing in undergrad. Like when I was in college and going from one class to the next, I'd stop. I'd read the whole entire thing and then I would sign and it would. But it's always like, do you have a moment for the environment? So I do. I do have a moment for the environment. (laughs) So who knows what the people who signed (laughs) the 233,000 signatures, who knows what research they did. But these signatures were gathered and submitted. And so the Clark County Clerk's Office does a like random verification. And that verification means they pull 5% of the signatures, they pull them out, read through them, and make sure that they're actually valid. And there were a lot of issues. So nearly half were declared invalid between some of the people weren't registered voters, some of the signatures weren't legible, some were valid but duplicates, one wasn't signed in ink, and then a very large percentage of that 5% sample was just labeled other (laughs) and invalid. And because the samples were considered, because that percentage of the sample was invalid, it dies. So that they're not going to be able to propose that to the legislature. And they spent a grip of money <laughs> trying to make this happen. So Community Schools Initiative says, here's what they promised and here's what they got. What they were promised was at least 70% of the signatures that were collected would be valid. And what they got, what they're allegedly saying that they got and what is in their lawsuit is that they received burnt petitions. Some smelled like bong water. What? There were obscenities <laughs> in place of names. <laughs> so that's the hot mess that is currently happening. Yeah, and the company that they hired, Vanguard, primarily works on conservative causes. They worked with Ted Cruz. They worked on Adam Laxalt's governor campaign. And they work around the country on voter ID laws. Ooh. Yeah, that's a that's not a cute lineup at all. No, the voter ID laws trying to make it harder for people to vote, generally speaking. Mm. So, David, in my head, I think, okay, it's a small group of people, like that it's a grassroots organization that comes together and they're like, all right, we're going to go get these signatures. And it's it's the boots on the ground. 
This is very different. Do you think it's common or have you noticed whether or not it's common for people to hire these giant outside firms to collect signatures and get people elected? Is that a thing now? Oh, and it's been a thing, I think, for a really long time. I mean, even if you go to the Vanguard Field Services website, they have a YouTube video. It's like volunteers who believe in the cause are really nice, but they're flaky. They aren't necessarily reliable. We vet the people. We are professionals. And we also believe in the cause. And they make sure they say that. But like if you go to and however reliable Ballotpedia is as a source, I mean, they talk about 2022 that for signature gathering on these citizen initiative ballots, that upwards of $100 million was spent in 38 different states, including Nevada. And so, yeah, they have it down to basically a science and people know that they're going to be paying X number of dollars per signature. And that could be $12 a signature, $18 a signature. I mean, it really varies. Uh, but they're out there and they've got the singular goal of getting that number. And so, yeah, they turn to uh, professional services to do it. And how much is this lawsuit for against Vanguard? Trying to discern it from what information has been made public so far, it does appear that this community schools initiative and, you know, whoever they really, really are, or what their goal is, I'm going to say, spent over $2 million for this part of the process. That's what it appears to be. It's probably a number close to that anyhow. Where they got that money is probably a matter of public record and digging, but that is a lot of money to spend, but that seems to be right. the going $2 rate. $2 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, who the who they hired on the ground, I mean, they this company does have a representative in Nevada. He seems to be the one who is they're focusing on in the lawsuit as, as making the representations or the guarantees, whether that hashes out or not. There are a lot of nuance and complexities to that. But I think the bottom line is that they were serious that they wanted to get this on the ballot and they spent the money that nowadays it requires to get that going. Mm. What that does is bring me back to the top of this conversation, which is like, It makes me sad about our democratic process because it feels like, okay, well, then it's really just about money. It costs money to run a campaign. It costs money to get a bill drafted and turned into and put in front of the legislature to become a law. Uh, And then then I go back to, you know, very what is the word? Pessimistic. (laughs) You know, that's one of the things is when they come up to me and if they're being particularly annoying or aggressive, I'll say, what's your connection to this? Mm. Where do you live? Mm. Why why did you decide to do this? Mm. What's your personal reason for being involved in this? And mm. I have once or twice been told, man, it's just a job. Yeah. Not not on this campaign. I'm just saying in general, I've heard that. Okay. Let's find something else to complain about, you guys. <laughs> Let's talk about F1, uh, which I had no idea about until Layla told me. But apparently they signed like a 10-year agreement. So whatever they're doing, they're going to keep doing it for the next 10 years. Is it annual? Yeah. Uh, please explain. So it started with three years. So this was going to be a recurring race for the next three years in Las Vegas. Now they are making it a 10-year annual event. They want to have it here permanently. They want to make Las Vegas a permanent location for their Grand Prix. They have one in Miami. They have one in Austin. They want their next one to be in Las Vegas. And so they think that they have achieved that with a 10-year contract and that it's mm-hmm. all said and done and that it's going to be here indefinitely. And it's like a big old race that goes. So it's a car race, 
that circles the strip. Is it a circle on the strip? How does this work? Yeah, it, it's going to go down the strip. It's going to go, I think, a block north of the airport. It's going to go past the wow. newly built MSG sphere and then back around on the strip. It goes 50 laps for 3.8 miles. The main grandstands, well, there are going to be huge grandstands in front of the Bellagio Fountains, which will be the main, they call it the main straight of the race. Mm. And it's, they're saying that it's going to be the biggest event of the year. It's expected to generate $1 billion, and that's two times what the Super Bowl is expected to generate. Wow. So it's, it's supposed to bring in a lot of money, but there's $30 million worth of infrastructure that still needs to happen in Las Vegas to even make it a viable place for the race to happen. So I'm wondering what you guys think of our new event that's happening in Las Vegas. Well, I, I don't know a lot about F1. Uh, I thought it was just a key on my computer to control the brightness, but oh, wow. dad joke. You're welcome. You're wow. welcome to all the dad Thank joke you. fanatics out there. You're welcome. Oh, that was for you. Uh, yeah, no. Um, it sounds like a video game to me that has Vegas on it. I like that's what I'm picturing is like one of these old school video games where you're doing a little driving around and you see like the the Paris balloon and, you know, the Bellagio fountains and, and maybe mm-hmm. Grand Theft Auto version. But anyway, I, I guess people are really fanatical about it. I, I'm interested in it because it might be a kind of a proof of concept that you can shut down Vegas Boulevard for extended periods of time. Maybe let's get cars off it unless it's something like a big event like F1. I don't know. What do you think, Vogue? No. (laughs) You like cars on Vegas Boulevard? Cars on Vegas Boulevard, I don't know. I mean, I know they built up those like barriers so that people couldn't just drunk people couldn't fall in the middle of the street so i appreciate that certain times a day like i'll take it as a shortcut to the airport and sometimes you just work your way around it but i feel like it's such a huge like spectacle and it feels super unsafe to me i'm like i everything that needs to get built i feel like it's a lot of money to build this up and i also noticed that like the mock-ups for the grandstands are also going to take the place of the trees on las vegas boulevard Um, Uh I don't like that either. It's funny. Someone on Reddit pointed out that, I mean, we're in a desert. All of the plants here were probably transplants. So we're guessing that it's going to be temporary like the grandstands. They're going to put the grandstands where the trees are, take the trees out. This And this is all going to be by MGM. And then put the trees back after it's done. I hope we don't lose those beautiful trees in front of the Bellagio water fountains. They've been there a while, right? Yeah, I think a lot of locals would be upset about that. And I think a lot of locals are going to be upset when F1 comes just because it's going to be such a big disruption. There's going to be a lot of closures around the airport all over the Strip. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a great idea. But Las Vegas, to me, is still such a small city that I'm really interested to see how we're going to handle an event to this size that's so massive do you know like how many days it's supposed to last so it's a three-day event and tickets are already sold out first of all but tickets for the grandstand started at 2000 and now packages from mgm and other resorts are going from i think i think i saw 5000 to 15000 what does a beyonce concert come with that i would hope so because i will try (laughs) to get a ticket then 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think the devil is always in the details and, you know, who knows exactly what the impact or how long it impacts in a more negative way than if it, it adds up to a net gain. But also, I'm going to say I don't really trust our officials to broker the best deals when it comes to things like this. I think they're just mm -hmm. happy to like look at those big flashy numbers of income that it generates and interest and don't really care about making the best deal that they can or leveraging the best deal. And I always yeah. feel like whenever something comes, whether it be life is beautiful or the, the rodeos or whatever it is, something that shuts down parts of Las Vegas, that they don't really get the full the full package and benefits that we probably could have negotiated out of it. But yeah, that's that's a great point, David, because even Commissioner Michael Naff said that the F1 can petition for some of these funds that have to go towards construction. And that can be public funds to contribute to some of this. So that kind of reminds me of the whole Allegiant Stadium fiasco. Right. So it'll be interesting to see how all of that comes out. We'll see construction start to happen for that in November, a week before. They have a, I think it's a three or five day period of building mm. a week before the event. And so be prepared for all of that construction and all those closures. Vogue, I think we need better wheeler dealers in, in the government to do it. Maybe somebody who previously had experience with a Ponzi scheme, but now has turned to the forces of good, maybe. Oh. Oh, they seem so good at getting money out of people. Catch me if you can, person. Now I want to watch that movie. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in the next 10 years as that monstrosity goes up and down and up and down. We'll still be here. So... Layla and David, thank you so much for hanging out today on CityCast Las Vegas. Thanks, Vogue. I look forward to our 10-year anniversary together. <laughs> Thanks, Vogue. It was fun. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our lead producer is Sonia Cho Swanson, and our producer is Layla Muhammad. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets, and our hosts are me, Vogue Robinson, and David Figler. Music is by OG Moose and All the Kimonos. We record this show on the traditional homelands of the Nuwubi, the Southern Paiute people. If you enjoyed the show, go ahead and tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Take care. Do you have a moment, Layla, to end the apocalypse? <laughs> Do you have a moment, Vogue? <laughs> yes, I think I think I would like to say yes, but now I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>